a book club and podcast for anyone who wants to explore the best mysteries and thrillers ever written. I'm your host, Sarah Harrison. And I'm your host, Carolyn Daughters. Pour yourself a tea or a gin and tonic, but not a toxin. No, and, and join us on a journey through 19th and 20th century mysteries and thrillers, every one of them a game changer. We're talking about the mystery of a handsome cab, and we've got a couple different episodes. So yeah, this is part two. So if you want to listen to part one, go back one. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to listen to them in order either. You can listen to them in in your own um, at, at your own leisure in whatever order you like. That's true. They're both full of spoilers, so <laughs> they're, they're loaded like, with spoilers. It's not like you won't get spoiled. So. Yeah, but before we dive into that, I think we have a sponsor. We do. We have an awesome sponsor. It's Linden Botanicals. They've sponsored other episodes and we love them. They are a Colorado-based company that sells the world's healthiest teas and extracts. Their team has traveled the globe to find the herbs that offer the best science-based support for immune health, stress relief, Energy, memory, mood, kidney health, joint health, inflammation, and digestion. That's a lot. It's very important Mm. to save the best for last. Mm -hmm. U.S. orders over $75 ship free. To learn more and get 10% off your first order, visit www.lindenbotanicals.com. Lindenbotanicals.com. We also have a listener of the month because, you know, we like to do that. We love you. Mm -hmm, We love our listeners. Um, Our listener award for this podcast episode goes to Wendy Anderson from Golden, Colorado. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you, Wendy. And that is Wendy with an I. That is (laughs) W-E-N-D-I. You know, because it's when when you have an I on the end of your name, I bet people get it wrong a lot. Yeah, if you're imagining how it's spelled in your mind, you were wrong. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you were right, and you're like, "Hey, <laughs> maybe I, if you're Wendy with an I, and you were hearing that, you were thinking, I bet that's me.'" <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Wendy, for Wendy with an I for being a member of the Tetonic and Toxin Book Club. We appreciate you. What are we gonna do for her? She gets a sticker. Sticker. They are very, very nice stickers. They're super sweet stickers. They look good on notebooks, water bottles, coolers. Mm-hmm. We should maybe get a patch so you can like sew it on your Letterman jacket or something. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in 2023, you know, I'm just going to throw some stuff out there that I'm going to, you know, overcommit and hopefully deliver. Uh, hats. Maybe Whoa, shirts. What? I know. But I was just thinking about a different line of stickers. Well, and, and, and so, yeah. So d- different line of stickers. I'm obsessed with stickers. Hats, shirts, or, you know, teacups or something like I that. I really want some um, tea tonic and toxin glasses. Yes, I, I do too. suitable. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're drinking out of some fun glasses. And now you have a llamas on your teacup, for example. Would our hats be like detective hats, like Sherlock Ooh. Holmes hats? So weird ones <laughs> with like, e- you know, earmuff parts. Yes. Or, yeah. And like houndstooth pattern. So I, I was thinking more like a baseball cap. It's okay, short, well, you know. Like a, maybe just like a houndstooth baseball cap. Yeah. Uh, the cool thing is, right. You can get your own on-air shout-out, which I think is fun. We, we think it's fun. We love doing it. Yes, we love doing it. Um, and you get a sticker. Um, 
by weighing in. All you have to do is just reach out. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know about our book choices. Give some suggestions. Tell us what you like. You know, if you have yeah. some issues, sh- share that as well. We've got a comment form on our website, which is www.tetonicandtoxin.com. And we have a Facebook page and an Instagram page, which is at Tetonic and Toxin. Yeah, so just talk to us. We're super nice. We are very we friendly. We a sticker just for doing it. Yes, we appreciate all the feedback we can get, as, as long as it's, you know, like, respectful. I mean, as long as you're just talking about how great we are. I mean, the, go you on know, and on. What I can't imagine what else they would address, but sure. <laughs> how great we are, how much you love the podcast, how these are the books that you're reading now, and you don't have time to read any other books, which is fine. Yeah, or I mean, yeah, like thoughts about the book. Uh, sure okay if you've already told us you know how wonderful we are you could probably also talk about the books yeah yeah that gets a sticker sticker all right and if you don't get a sticker and you're like hey i made a comment just comment again your time will come oh yes yes we take note of all comments we um try hopefully we're doing good job we're trying to keep up with comments reply back to people we um yeah we love the input we we love that you're listening yeah thank you yeah. thanks wendy thank you wendy with an eye so this is part two this is part two of two parts mm-hmm. of the mystery of a handsome cab and and you listener have read this book or you haven't but you could still be part of this conversation right because sarah is going to tell you what this book is all about yeah. Yeah, it is an 1886 crime novel written by New Zealander Fergus Hume. It's one of the most famous crime classics of the Victorian era. The story is set in Melbourne, Australia. A gentleman hails a handsome cab for a drunk man. When the gentleman recognizes the drunk man, he leaves. Minutes later, the gentleman seemingly returns and gets in the cab. En route to the drunk man's home, the gentleman hops out. Later, the cab driver finds the drunk man dead in the back, along with a handkerchief saturated with chloroform. The dead man is Oliver White, who recently arrived from England. The night he was killed, Oliver argued with Mark Freddleby, a wealthy Australian. Freddleby Freddleby had told Oliver that he could marry his daughter Madge, but that night Freddleby called the marriage off because Madge was in love with another man, Brian Fitzgerald. Later that same night, Oliver had drinks at a bar with his friend Roger Moreland. All evidence points to jealousy as the motive, and Fitzgerald is the killer, and Mr. Gorby of the detective office arrests Fitzgerald. However, Fitzgerald is declared innocent at a trial when a young woman named Sal Rollins gives him an alibi. We learn that the night Oliver died, Sal gave Fitzgerald a letter that led him to visit a woman named Mother Guttersnipe apparently told him a big secret. While Fitzgerald didn't commit the murder, he seems to know who did. He seems to be protecting Madge, though it's not clear why. Fitzgerald's lawyer resolves to bring the murderer to justice. He learns about the recent death of Mother Guttersnipe's daughter, Mother Guttersnipe's daughter, Rosanna Moore. He also learns that Rosanna had had a relationship with Freddleby and that Oliver had the had the papers to prove it. At this point in the story, Mark Freddleby dies. Mm. At first, it seems Freddleby must have murdered Oliver to keep his relationship with Rosanna secret. 
Before he died, however, Frettlby wrote a confession where he admitted marrying Rosanna and having a child with her. That child, Sal, is his legitimate heir. Believing they were both dead, Frettlby remarried and had another child, Madge. In the confession, Frettlby says he didn't kill Oliver. It's revealed that the real killer was Oliver's friend, Roger Moreland. Roger used chloroform to knock Oliver out so he could steal Oliver's papers and blackmail Frettlby. Roger is arrested and kills himself. Oh. Frettlby's marriage to Rosanna, Sal's existence, and Madge's illegitimacy remains secret. The story ends with Madge and Fitzgerald setting sail for Europe. Oh. Well, that is a lot, because this yeah. is not a huge book. No, there was a lot going on. Yeah. We talked about quite a lot of it already. Yes. Some, still several kind of key... I think themes we yeah. haven't really hit on yet. For for example, the story is um, it's set in Melbourne, and so that you know may have seemed you know super interesting and exotic in the Victorian era. It, it still may today, to be honest. I mean, people want to take their vacation in Australia mm-hmm. and so forth. So, um, having a book set in Melbourne instead of in London, for example, which was you know, much more common, kind of fun. Um, and, and Australia is considered, at least by the narrator of this book, the land of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to be a rich person. Where do you go? Well, maybe you go to the United States. Maybe you go to Australia. Um, and we learn Mark Frettlby, which is, you know, the father of uh, Madge, he came to Australia, determined to become a rich man, and he becomes a rich man. You did it. Good job. <laughs> Kudos. Well done, Mark <laughs> Frettlby. Um, all that money, and he couldn't put another vowel in his last name. <laughs> Unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, he had that extraordinary, the narrator tells us, extraordinary, vivacious Irish temperament, which enables a man to put all his trouble behind his back and thoroughly enjoy the present. Um and so, you know, we can ask, okay, what were their lives like back in England and Ireland? Various characters, Brian Fitzgerald, um, you know, came came from Ireland, Mark Frettlby from England, and they really like made their way here in Australia. So how how easy do we think this was in the Victorian era? Like, you just get on a boat, you arrive there, and bam, like, now you're of the moneyed class. <laughs> it seems pretty tough still to mm-hmm. me. Like, and not everybody was doing it. Roger Moreland, for his part, was really failing at it. He's bartending, right? Yeah, he had, like, taken a part-time bartender job yeah. from whatever he had before and was out of money. And Mark Frettlby seems to have put his ducks in the right row or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly not, like... There was no poverty in Australia. It seems like there was quite a lot still. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, Melbourne seems like a city with, you know, all the classes. And in the lower class, there are slums and poverty. Yeah. yeah. Um, we we learn um, Mark Frettlby was in a merchant's office in London. We learned that he was sort of in a dead-end job. He was going to go nowhere. Um, he was probably better off than someone who couldn't find work or who was living on the street, but he was never going to become wealthy in in um, in London. 
So he comes to New South Wales in some sometime in the 19th century, um, and um, he wanted to start a new life, which he does. He's able to just sort of start fresh. Um, he inherited a little tiny bit of money, just enough to help him move to Australia, and then he bought land every chance he got, and he became this sort of wealthy, well-known guy in in the Melbourne society. Like, not too shabby. Yeah. We should all ha- inherit just enough money to <laughs> send us <laughs> sailing to wherever the place yeah. is that, you know, we make our our big future. You can buy some land. Yeah, my, buying land helps. Um, and then Brian Fitzgerald, okay. Um, his family lost their fortune in Ireland, and he came to Australia to make a new fortune. He brought letters of introduction to Mark Frettleby, number one. That helps, right, to have letters of introduction to the rich guy. Which um, is funny. Like, how did he get... Because I guess with family, if you come from money, somebody's going to write you this letter. Somebody says, in, in your social circle, says, oh, well, I know this guy, Mark Frettleby, in Melbourne. I would love to write you a letter of introduction to him. That must be, because I was thinking, like, in England, he was just a clerk. No, so Bri- who's not Brian. Be- I know, but Frettleby was. Frettleby was, yeah. And so back in England, they're like, mm. I guess he was just unknown in England and known in Australia mm-hmm. for being a rich guy. Yeah. I'd love to see one of those letters, though. Yeah, like, I, I want a letter of introduction. Yeah. I mean, I, my life is sorely lacking in letters of introduction. I'll write you one. Who would you like to meet? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I need to know who's in your circle that you can introduce um, me to. Nothing, maybe nothing, as highfalutin as Mark Frelby. You know, governors, yeah. senators. I'll write that right up. Let me write that. Representatives, millionaires would be fine. I'll write you some. Mm-hmm. I don't know it. I don't know them. Tech giants? But I'll write them. <laughs> they, won't, they won't know. They don't know me. <laughs> Dear Mr. Bezos, <laughs> be, thanks, Carolyn. Carolyn happy is to awesome. meet you. And you will definitely want to meet her and probably work with her. Yeah, she Find can help you with your marketing. Your friend, Sarah. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I know a Sarah. Mm. Everyone does. I'll be like, I, I don't recall her, but, she, you know. Carolyn's fact, great. Thanks, Sarah. The fact that she wrote this letter means she must be at, at, at least an acquaintance of mine. All right. Somebody <laughs> set, up the, set up the meeting with Carolyn. Yeah. That's what I'll write letters, folks. Yeah. Um, It's just part of the service of uh, Grace Sigma. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We do write letters of introduction. Yeah, it's gracesigma.com. In case you're you're wanting some of these letters for yourself, um, with her very wide or maybe not wide, I don't know, circle of of people she can introduce you to. Infinite. I'll introduce you to all the people you want to (laughs) know. You will not. You will write the letter of introduction. Right. There will be no actual <laughs> I'll write the letter for all the people you There's no know. introduction. That's what the letter's for. <laughs> um, so, I mean, Brian Fitzgerald comes from Ireland, and he makes so much money. So, okay, he has this letter of introduction he presents to Mark Frettleby. And then suddenly he's on the fast track to wealth and all of, you know, all of the bells and whistles. And he gets enough money, he's thinking of rebuilding his castle in ireland yeah. oh, it just it warms the heart it's nice um, do it. yeah uh, i would think the letters from mark Fredleby being engaged to Fredleby's daughter madge 
this probably, you know, this this helps along your way of trying to, to you know, make your way in Melbourne mm-hmm. society. So then we have somebody like uh, Mother Guttersnipe, who, I mean, she probably wasn't born in Australia. She probably came on a ship. She doesn't have the same luck. No. Well, she doesn't start out as bad as she ends up. Mm-hmm. It sounds, you know, from the book, like um, she had the most famous daughter in Australia mm-hmm. for a while and kind of kept her eye on her really tightly. And that's Rosanna Moore. Yeah, Rosanna Moore. Yeah. Yeah, but then I guess uh, this whole weird affair with Fredelby and Rosanna, which just still is boggling my mind. Mm-hmm. Like, they got married. Mm-hmm. Everyone was in love with this um, dancer, Rosanna. Yeah. But she seems like, you know, like, not a gutter-snipe person, like a dancer, you know? And she was watched by her mother, and mm-hmm. everything was on the up and up. But then the marriage was secret. Because yes. Mark didn't want to tell his father he married not a Presbyterian. <laughs> so his father's presumably back in England. Mm-hmm. How his father's going to find out She's not Presbyterian. The whole thing seemed very strange. Yeah, then why didn't Rosanna tell her mother? Yeah, who apparently like watched her like a hawk to make sure. Confusing. You know, she kind of retained her virtue. Yeah. Yeah, that was really confusing. Yeah, why wouldn't you tell your mother? Why would you keep that a secret? So yeah, so there were whole lives, and this like became. Some sort of weird plot twist. Mm-hmm. So this this poor mother gutter snipe thinks Mark Fredelby like ruined her daughter mm-hmm. and turned her into his mistress. And I don't know. Did she think she died in England also, or did she know she stayed alive? I don't remember. That's a great question. What did she? No, I think she knew she was alive. She knew she was alive. But she, so she was raising their daughter. Yeah. But in this weird vindictive way where she's like, well, Mark Fredelby ruined my daughter, so I'm going to ruin his daughter. Who also happens to be my granddaughter. Yeah. Which is also her daughter's daughter. <laughs> so, right. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And so she actually, that, that kind of triggers Mother Gutter Snipe, I think, into the gutter was like... This this terrible from being this sort daughter. of upstanding, mm. we're going to retain our virtues and just you know be in the theater type person to yeah. I'm going to make a fallen woman out of my granddaughter and she's like becomes a terrible alcoholic. Mother gutter snipe yes, is not yeah. the grand the granddaughter yeah. somehow seems to be a fairly upstanding human being. Yeah, I mean she's definitely um, kind of living with all of these different men throughout the book and mm. but yeah she's like has a moral compass <laughs> she's not like ruined by addiction right so this rosanna moore not telling her mother she had married mark Fredelby would be maybe maybe akin to you your friend your daughter your niece whatever marrying jeff bezos and not telling anyone <laughs> like why would you keep such a thing secret it's so strange. Um, yeah, you prefer everyone to think you're the mistress, not the wife. Yeah, really, really weird. And so then she goes off, and I believe Sarah and I have debated this a, a little bit. And readers, you may have to help clear this up for us. This may just this may be poor reading on my part. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
she she disappears with the daughter, I believe. Oh, yeah, that's what we were confused about is when the daughter got to the grandma. Yeah. I thought Mark never knew he had a daughter, but I could be wrong about that. I thought he did and heard that she had died. And then later hears that Rosanna has died. Neither of them, of course, died. Well, I mean, Rosanna eventually dies in the in the book. But yeah, when she comes back. He, he bases an entire, like, new life on the idea that they're dead because he marries another woman. He has a child who is Madge and presumes that Madge is his legitimate child, is a legitimate yeah. heir, not his illegitimate child. Yeah, he like loves loves his second wife, loves mm-hmm. his daughter, mm-hmm. has this great life and yeah. just thinks everything's fine. Yeah. Um and so there are all these different classes in in the book. Um you have like the the men of means, um, like a Mark Frettleby, a Brian Fitzgerald, you have the men of few means, like Oliver White and Roger Moreland, you have the working class there's a handsome cab driver. There's a landlady, um, Sal Rollins, who is um, Mark Frettleby's secret granddaughter. And then you have the gutter snipes, who are like the scruffy, badly behaved street urchins, people like Mother Gutter Snipe. And, you know, maybe burlesque dancers like Rosanna Moore. You can look at her in, in different Yeah, I think lights. actually Sal. Sal was more of um, a gutter person mm-hmm. and... Uh, she even talks about like taking up with uh, a Chinese minor mm-hmm. um, at one point in the book, and she's like very super ashamed of it. And mm-hmm. but so she kind of seems to travel around and take up with just these different guys. Um, whereas Rosanna Moore, you know, was like upstanding and guarded, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of maintained her position. So yeah, yeah. I really hated honestly how they kind of treated the working class landladies in the book that made me like really uncomfortable <laughs> to be honest like i kind of treated them comically but mm. in, a, in an unkind and inhuman way to my reading the the one landlady i don't remember if there's multiple landladies i know um oliver white had a landlady mm-hmm. and um when she speaks the other characters can't even understand her English. Yeah. Her accent is so strong. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. And uh, then she starts defending, you know, well, my cousin or my aunt want a spelling bee or something. I know English. And Wait, was that White's landlady or was that Fitzgerald's? Oh, that might be Fitzgerald. Brian Fitzgerald's yeah. landlady. I mean, she's kind of comical, but she's had a hard life. Like, these landladies, man, they're scraping mm-hmm. by. Mm-hmm. They're renting rooms out of their house to get by, essentially. Yeah, you feel bad for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, and I did. And, I mean, at times I felt bad for Mother Gutter Snipe, though I, I don't think we're meant to. I know, that's the thing. I don't think in any case we were meant to feel bad for them. Mm-hmm. Like, the landladies were supposed to be these comic relief characters, but I was like, man, that's harsh. He's yeah. had a really rough life, and what really got me with the Mother Gutter Snipe, you know, they're just, she's just like overwhelmingly 
I would say poor until you find out at the end she's quite wealthy. Um, <laughs> but you think she's overwhelmingly poor. For some poor, reason, she's chosen this. Yeah, yeah. and alcoholic yeah. and living in this, this miserable condition mm-hmm. and this terrible place. Mm-hmm. And they had put up a huge reward, like, find Sal Rollins, all of the reward. Yeah. And then Sal comes back and they go to Mother Guttersnipes and talk to her and she's like, oh, where's the reward? Yeah. And they're like, Pfft. Well, you're not going to get it. Sal found herself. Like, yeah. Okay, but you were willing to give a lot of money, and she's really poor. Right. There didn't seem to be a whole lot and of pity back, for And she came back, yeah, for her grandmother. Yeah. That's where you found her. Yeah. Yeah, and like, at one point, so, you know, they're trying to find Sal Rollins, who's going to provide evidence to help clear Brian Fitzgerald, and um, she'd been ill, so that's why she didn't provide Brian Fitzgerald's alibi earlier, um, so this reward's offered, and um, whoever was caring for her while she was ill never even read um, that this reward was offered. And so Colton, the attorney, he says, vegetables, he calls them vegetables. How can people be so ignorant? At any rate, it's money out of their pocket. So it's like a win. Like, I I don't know. I had a, pro- I had a problem with these kinds of statements, yeah. which are sprinkled throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's their it's their fault that they're ignorant yeah they're only just like working on the farm all day and night yeah reading my newspaper ad (laughs) stupid yeah um how can people be so ignorant well i would argue it's probably because they don't go to school and um haven't in some cases learned to read or even if they do know how to read are probably not reading the daily paper yeah wasn't madge teaching sal how to read yes. after she hired her mm-hmm. so it's not like sal could have even read the ad and come yes in. yeah and it reminded me a little bit in bleak house of esther summerson teaching charlie how mm-hmm. to read and you know educating her and seeing this young woman of great potential and recognizing that and you know sort of bringing her up yeah she'll still be working class her whole life mind you like bringing her up so she can be a better servant i guess i don't know but well you know you can you get a lot from reading as we believe here in the tetonic and toxin yeah yeah it makes life better and more enjoyable Mm -hmm. whether or not you get to be rich and play tennis all day i wouldn't mind trying (laughs) sure i'll take one yeah, and then you come in, you know, come in and, you know, get a refreshment, maybe a bite. <laughs> and, you know, you rest and relax for a little bit and you might go back out and play tennis some more. Yeah, they like refresh themselves with all this champagne. I was like, oh, that sounds like not what to drink after a bunch of tennis <laughs> on a hot yeah. day. Yes. Um, you know, this is this is a normal day for them. So maybe they, they've got a handle on it. I don't know. Yeah, but that's, I felt that too. And I felt that in um, the Wilkie Collins books, mm-hmm. I feel like there's just not an, not enough sympathy with kind of the lower class characters where yeah. Dickens is just such a contrast with that. You know, when he's like writing these characters, you can tell he feels for them. And mm-hmm. he's kind of like making these dry, humorous remarks about kind of the ignorant, silly, high class people if they're, if they're acting that way. Dickens can also make fun of lower class people. It's really about the person. Yes. So it's not about they they fall into this class and therefore they're the butt of any jokes that yes. I have. It's more 
this is the role this particular character is playing in the book. And so they are the comedy relief or they are the ignorant, you know, person who's trying to be better than they are or, or what have you. They are the good hearted, simple, poor working class or it's really where whatever role he wants them to have. They can be they can be really anything in, their, yeah. in Dickens. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess sometimes this this comedy just kind of fell flat for me at mm-hmm. the expense. You wrote here, um, <clears throat> the Fitzgerald's landlady says locus. Yeah. When she meant locus? <laughs> like, like I thought, did they say it not like locusts? Locus. locus. I don't know. Locus. She says locus, meaning locusts. And um, he has trouble. So Fitzgerald who's an Irishman who probably has his own accent. We don't know what accent his Australian yeah, landlady has. Yeah, you would have has. like an Irish accent probably, which is, you know, not superior. Right. An Australian And one. Australians have a def- sort of dis- de- definitive or distinguished accent. I don't know how how distinguished it was in the At Victorian this time, era. Yeah. And then I would imagine just like in the United States, there are different accents for different geographic regions and also just, you know, how you lived and how you grew up and, and so forth, who you're around and how they speak. So we don't know how the landlady sounds, but Fitzgerald might be difficult to understand, yeah. d- depending. But she says, um, though not being a scholar, I speaks English. I hopes, I hopes my mother's second cousin haven't had a first prize in a spelling bee yeah she does i mean she does amusingly go into these long tangential stories yeah yeah. um yeah so she is sort of the comedy yeah yeah um yeah um and you know then we have madge and sal who are like two sides of a coin right like yeah i really felt like sal got a raw deal mm-hmm. in, the, in the book and i think i was supposed to feel like she got a good deal but i didn't so what made you think she, you, you were supposed to feel that she had a good deal? Like I, f- I felt like I was supposed to be like, oh, well, isn't that great? Madge is educating her, mm-hmm. and you know, to Madge's credit, I don't really have a problem with her as a character. Sure, I think she was a good person. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah. uh, but then so kind of notably, they decide not to tell Sal that she <laughs> oh, is <God. coughs> Mark Oldby's daughter, and they decide not to tell Madge either that she has a sister yeah sal rollins they rationalize it yeah they're like well what good could it do yeah. sal wasn't brought up for this level of status as though mark was he was just a clerk right right <laughs> and, right you know it would be a scandal on madge and mm-hmm. so they just all decide amongst themselves that people don't need to know about themselves and they burn all the evidence and never and tell that them from on high they should be the ones deciding who yeah. should so um, in in the Moonstone, there's a doctor who's sort of playing God, and mm-hmm. now these guys are playing God. Well, I'm. They need to hear this, but they don't need to hear that. And yeah, it, it's it's affecting people's entire lives. The decisions they're making. Well, that happened several times. Mm-hmm. I think you and I talked about the doctor. I think Chinston, like Mark Fredelby, came to see him because mm-hmm. he's like, I feel like I have a heart condition. <laughs> And he checked him out and he's like, no, you're good. Mm. And then he goes and tells Madge, he has a really bad heart condition. <laughs> like, what? He called you. He paid your bill. Right. What are you? What? <laughs> like, right. He doesn't need to know he has a heart condition. I'll tell you his daughter. Right. 
Why, why are things being kept? So from my perspective, I, I would think if I withheld information from this person or that person that, I don't know, I mean, what, what makes me think that I have the right, and that my rationale is correct? Like, I feel like that's really presumptuous. Yeah, it really, it, it, it struck me as bizarre. But then I think I told you this story as well from my friend. Mm. Um, so I just tell it here because I always question myself. I'm like, is this bizarre or am I just like too enmeshed in American culture to mm-hmm. kind of see what the, what the point is of this? But I was telling you my friend, um, his wife, her her father who's like in his 90s now, got Mm. pancreatic cancer. Mm. And he is Chinese. And all of his children decided not to tell him he had pancreatic cancer. Okay. And so his daughter, my friend's wife, is trying to fly there to see him before he dies. And he does not know he has pancreatic cancer. I mean, he knows he's dying, obviously. But I thought that was the most surprising thing I'd heard, that you can decide still... Still, to right. not tell people right. um, that they have these illnesses, but that your family can decide for you. But that's what that made me think of in this book, that they tell the kid, mm-hmm. Madge, and sort of let her decide for her father mm-hmm. what's going to happen. So there's, and I was trying to think of the movie. We were discussing this a few days ago, and I think it's called The Farewell, and I haven't seen it yet, but it stars Aquafina among various other people. But a Chinese family discovers their grandmother has only a short while to live and decide to keep her in the dark, scheduling a wedding together before she dies. Yeah. Yeah. Like Um, that you can even keep people in the dark because the doctor doesn't tell them the truth. They tell the kids. Right. So playing God, like I'm I am going to decide who needs to hear this and who doesn't. For some reason, I know best. Well, and at what point? So that's interesting. At some point, mm. we do believe the kid knows better than the parents. That's yeah. when you kind of take over power of attorney, mm-hmm. you know. And so my parents have already kind of got the power of attorney socked away. My brother and I will get it at such a point for them. Sure. But at what point is it when, yeah. when the children are deemed, like we have kind of a legal action there mm-hmm. that deems the children will know better than the parent. Okay. But for these situations... It's just gut feel for the individual. Like Mark was in his prime. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't like <laughs> old and dying. Yeah. Yeah, I don't it did feel it did feel to me like you said playing God or it just felt it just felt very strange. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be not an isolated practice. No. And and so Sal who's the ser- she's a servant in in her sister's house. She doesn't know it's her sister's house. Um, and the narrator says it's a strange irony of fate that brought together these two children of the same father, the one reared in luxury and, afflu- and, and affluence, never having known want, the other dragged up in the gutter, all un- unsexed and besmirched by the life she had led. So, you know, we get into the, you know, the question of fate here, um, which... You know, we have we have a few other things. Oh, yeah, to, some we, more quotes about fate. Yeah, we can we let's talk about fate for just a second because fate dealt these two women very different hands, and then the men who are in possession of the truth are going to 
do everything they can to keep this secret. Yeah, they are like the hand of fate themselves. They yeah. are they are the hands of fate. These men. <laughs> uh, that reminds me, just total side topic. Mm. But if you haven't seen the MST3K movie, Manos Hands of Fate. Okay. I'm recommending it. It's my favorite. I don't know anything about this movie. It's amazing. Hmm. What's amazing about it? It's so cheesy. <laughs> it's really funny. It's really, really funny. Manos Hands of Fate. Um, that's not what we're talking about, but we did just say Hands of Fate. It's going to need to go on to our list of things that you need to read and watch. <laughs> Random things associated with actual things. Yes. That's um, what we'll call it. The, the knowledge base you all are going to build <laughs> being part of the tea, tonic, and toxin community. It's just, I mean, its it just brings tears to my eyes. Carolyn's going to watch this and she's going to be like, what is wrong with you, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Hands oh, I of can't fate. wait. I cannot wait. I, can't, I mean, I may leave this recording and just go straight to it. No, stay here. I'm blocking you in behind the desk. Okay. <laughs> all, right. all right. I will. I'm gonna. I'm gonna stick around. I'm gonna see this conversation through. All right. Hands of fate about the book. Yeah. Should we read any of these quotes? Yeah. I mean, so this is again the author dropping in some you know, words of wisdom or thoughts in his head that do or do not connect with the story. This one connects a little more closely than yeah, some others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we get this whole Madge and Sal. It's basically an accident of birth, right? Like mm -hmm. the one was born here, the other one was born there and completely different Who lives. are we to change where they were born? Mm -hmm. So what do, yeah. what do we have here? Well, it says, uh, men found out that the deity Nemesis had not been altogether useless as a scapegoat upon which to lay the blame of their own shortcomings. So they created a new deity called Fate and laid any misfortune which happened to them at her charge. Her worship is still very popular, especially among lazy and unlucky people who never bestir themselves on the ground that their lives are already settled by fate. Set up any idol you please upon which to lay the blame of unhappy lives and baffled ambitions, but the true cause is to be found in men themselves. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> the hands of fate. It seems a little unfair to me. Because again, you have Mark, mm -hmm. who like got his start by getting an inheritance mm -hmm. <laughs> and was able to like buy land and... Mm -hmm. Pull himself up by his bootstraps or what have you. Yeah. And Sal just gets denied that chance because she was not born to it. She was, but she wasn't. Right. She wasn't raised to it. She was born to it, not raised to it. Yeah. So they're trying to protect. They keep saying they're trying to protect Mark Fredelby's good name. Mm -hmm. So what? what is this good name that is worth protecting to the degree that you keep all of these secrets? What... Is this a legitimate concept that he somehow earned or has this good name and you just, you know, move heaven and earth to protect it? Yeah, I'm a hard no on that one. <laughs> I'm not even like quavering. It's yeah. just a no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I, I think the truest, one of the truest things mm -hmm. I've ever read, biblically speaking, is the passage that the truth will set you free. Sure. And I completely 100% believe that. 
Okay. And so when you get to the point that I have to hide and lie about this, yeah. <laughs> I have to like subvert the truth mm-hmm. in order for some people to benefit. Then I'm like, no, it's off base. Yeah. Mark himself wrote his confession. Right. He didn't say burn this after reading Carlton. He wrote the confession. He tried to put the truth out there and they burned it because mm-hmm. they just all wanted to, I guess, protect. Madge and Brian, really, is how I felt about it. Mm-hmm. They wanted Madge and Brian to be unaffected, and they just didn't care as much. Because I guess they were worthier human beings in their eyes. They were their buddies. Yeah. <laughs> or but just even, I mean, buddies, yes. But a different class of person, the, the type that you protect mm-hmm. at all costs. So Sal is dispensable, whereas Madge has been raised in a particular way where she needs to be treated as an upper class, respectable woman, and you need to protect her good name, her father's good name. This this made logical sense to them, and yet they critique multiple times throughout the book the feminine intuition and the lack or a breakdown of logic of women's thinking, for me, this was a huge breakdown in logic. Oh, yeah. It definitely was. Yeah. The whole thing is fu- the whole thing is funny, you know, because even while they're critiquing, like, intuition, mm-hmm. they're writing logical deductions, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yes. Or even while they're, like, talking about Mark pulling himself up from small right. means, they're denying that to other people of small means right. who have a legitimate right mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. But... Yeah, I, 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 I really struggled with this. I just does ha- does coming from a family with money like Brian Fitzgerald, you know, you lived in a castle or your forebears lived in a castle, and somehow that equates to your deserving a letter of introduction to Mark Frettlby in Melbourne, which then in turn translates into your upward mobility in Melbourne society, like. Why, why are these each, why does the fact that your family had money or that you lived in a castle mean you deserve to have a reputation protected? You deserve to have this particular life. You just like, I don't know. I don't, I'm having some trouble with it. No, it definitely breaks down. I mean, the letter of introduction makes sense to me. Like we always do that. And if we're like, oh, I think you would be good with this person, or let me introduce you to this mm-hmm. CEO, or here's a connection. That you know, you happily make connections for people you have confidence in with other people. But yes, it's called LinkedIn. Yeah, <laughs> to make to make the leap yes. that that someone um, mm-hmm. of like poor upbringing doesn't deserve to know the truth or that Mm -hmm. people just don't deserve to know the truth and make their own decisions that's where i get hung up yeah 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 that's where it breaks down yeah that makes sense yeah a lot of a lot of trouble with it and then by extension you know colton is in the slums talking to mother gutter snipe this is her nickname and um there's all this sort of conflicting information given to us where um, he's worried and um, Kilsip, the detective, is worried in particular, am I going to get sick if I go into this slum? Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, they get there and Calton pushes a woman who's in his way. He actually physically pushes a woman, 
we don't know why just it's it's considered legitimate because we're supposed to identify with Colton where I believe we're supposed to like him I think we are um he addresses mother gutter snipe gently offers to get her a doctor and yet he's been really quite you know brisk and rude toward her and then afterwards he says he needs a glass of brandy because he feels so ill after his experience of low life and it's I'm just have trouble wrapping my brain around it like is he feeling any sympathy toward this woman is he I don't know my my general sense is no he, he seems to go kind of hot and cold and mm-hmm. be nice and mean mm-hmm. and I, I yeah I don't love him as a, I don't hate him I don't love him <laughs> I didn't love any of the characters. No, yeah. I mean, I liked Madge. Yeah. I liked Sal. I liked Sal. But I thought I they were solid. That. I thought they were pretty solid. I liked Sal because, you know, super loyal um, and trustworthy, yeah. as we discover. And then after Mark Fredleby dies, she just starts running the entire household as if she's yeah. been doing it her whole life. But she couldn't handle the money for sure. No. <laughs> Um, you know they didn't want to tell Madge either I think because they know Madge would have done the right thing yeah um, because it wasn't a question of money Madge was clearly named the heir or it would have would given have her brain fever or she would have got she, she just recovered from shrieking. a brain fever so yes. she might have fallen back into brain fever there would have been shrieking there would have been brain fever she would not have been able to handle the truth you can't handle the I truth I think she would have been happy to have a sister honestly she already liked Sal yeah. <laughs> she yeah. Like, he would call her over and teach her stuff and just yeah. treat her as a friend. Yes. Um, so heaven forbid they should know they were actually sisters. Yeah. You know, one question I have. So Roger Moreland's barely a character in this story. <laughs> okay. So uh, here, here's a confusion that I had, and this is just me being ridiculous, but truly <laughs> I had this issue. So we have Rosanna more and we have which i keep thinking rosanna spearman every time I read. Ro- rosanna spearman <laughs> yes these poor rosannas yes um rosanna spearman from the moonstone which you if you have not read or listened to our episodes please uh, like drop everything i mean not the second you got to hear us so. no drop it okay yeah, it's <laughs> it's it is good moonstone is good um so I keep thinking, okay, Rosanna Moore and then Roger Moreland. And I kept thinking Roger Moore, like, <laughs> um, like, wasn't that James Bond? James Bond. And it just, I found it, I was like, okay, there aren't that many characters in the book. Like, I feel like the author should have worked a little harder. <laughs> okay. That's a side, side note. So Roger Moreland, we don't know much about. We are introduced to him briefly at the beginning. He is referenced periodically throughout the book. And then... At the end, we see him leaving Mark Frettleby's house. We don't know what's going on. And then later we find out that the detective Kilsip is correct. Roger Moreland committed this crime. <laughs> like, wh- so why did it take so many months for Roger Moreland to start blackmailing Mark Frettleby? Which is what, mm. what was happening. So he's blackmailing him because he's got these papers proving, you know, Rosanna Moore was your wife and so forth. Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like it's a plot hole. I mean, I guess he didn't want to do it while Brian Fitzgerald was on trial. Why? I don't know. Maybe he would have, like, given him away. Mm. 
Maybe he was kind of waiting till all the dust settled and then felt he could safely do so. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just really think like... Because he didn't mean to kill White. He just wanted to get the papers and do blackmail, but then White died. Right. And it kind of made a big hubbub. Yeah. From a, a blackmailing standpoint, I feel like he could have blackmailed better. Oh, sure. <laughs> like, it just was not the best blackmailing Well, I he ever was saw. kind of, he was winning. Mm. It all worked until, like, Mark Fredably had a heart, wrote a confession and had a heart attack. Yeah. Because yeah. nobody told him he had a heart condition. <laughs> yeah. Um... So something else that sort of bugged me, because I'm just going to stick with things that l- bugged me a little bit. Um, <laughs> so there's all these chapters in the book uh, where Brian Fitzgerald is just muttering things to himself aloud. And um, I'm like, and, and several other characters do it too. I think Gorby does it. Like Gorby kind of fills us in on the plot. Well, now, mm. I'm, now I'm going to go follow Brian Fitzgerald around town. Okay, so... I didn't. I didn't know if the um, narrator was trying to say they were thinking these things, or were they actually just going around talking to themselves all the time? Do you talk to yourself out loud? I think I do, but maybe not uh, in as expository a fashion, where I'm just sort of leading a pretend other person through the details of my life. I think I do more than I realize. Mm. I started noticing. Um, like, if I have the kids in the back seat, yeah, I'm talking to myself, and then I'm like, people are listening. <laughs> you know, like, my son might say something, and I'm like, Ugh. what was I just saying just now? Shut up, shut up Sarah. <laughs> like, I'll be talking through something. I will. I'll have out loud conversations. It turns mm. out that I didn't, I'm not sure I realized I was doing that. Mm. Until you have, like, children are so weird. It's like they're there, but they're also... They've always been there, so they're like part of you, and so they're not there. Uh-huh. And you do and say things around them that normally you'd only do and say around yourself. Okay. So I'm, but but they're growing enough till I realize they're not myself. That, that is a good. That's a <laughs> what am I saying? Very important realization. <laughs> yes. I I don't think I have full conversations with myself, but when I'm reading something or watching something that I really enjoy. I will sort of make utterances. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Mm. Like, I, you know, I'm sort of <laughs> reacting. Yeah. But I'm not having a full-fledged, I, I think I'm not having a full-fledged conversation with myself. I'm more just sort of unable to contain, you know, my frustration or, oh, no, like fear that something's going to happen yeah. or shock that a character in a book did this versus, you know, it's just me expressing <laughs> no i i am worse than you than that for sure like <laughs> if people get annoyed like if you're you know obviously if you're in a public movie yeah. i shut up i don't say anything yeah um but if i'm at a home movie yeah. and actually my husband doesn't mind and we'll do it together we kind of we're like talk at like what are you doing and then i'll explain like i'll explain to the character mm. how off base they are <laughs> Like, don't do that that's stupid oh no do you know like, mystery science theater yeah that's the man with hands of fate that is yeah i did not know that yeah yeah so mystery science theater you know that they, they just sit in the like three of them also sit in the audience and just sort of yeah. like it's some terrible movie playing so you're thanks for bringing that back to manos by the way. yeah it's, <laughs> I, I didn't even know i was so i am i am tapped in i have no idea how 
Um, but they're watching. See, it's a movie within a movie or a show within a show. So you're watching them watching a screen of some terrible movie and they're just like yeah. very humorously tearing it apart. Well, now that I know you like it, you might actually enjoy The Hands of Fate. So okay. check it out. Okay. Yeah, no, like me and Nate will both just kind of like probably more me yeah. he's gonna be like no entirely you sarah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i've never done that yeah i say more things out loud than i ever realized now that other people live in my life with me yeah well before um he wrote this book fergus hume which i think is by the way a pretty cool name fergus hume. it is a good name yeah it sounds like a novelist i, I would like um I would like to know someone named Fergus, and right now I don't think I do. I don't either. If your name is Fergus, tell us and get a sticker. Yeah. We will, just because your name is Fergus and you've told us, you'll get yeah. a sticker. Um, so before he wrote this book, he reached out to his publisher and said, hey, what's popular right now? Because he wanted to write a popular book. How did he already have a publisher? Is he already writing books? He probably had a letter of introduction to oh, the publisher. I bet he did. And um, so... The publisher tells him about the books of this guy, Emile Gabarreau, who wrote um, about the detective Monsieur Lecoq and is recognized as the father of the police novel. Okay, so Mystery of a Handsome Cab is immediate commercial success. It sells 30,000 copies in its first six months. And um, afterward, Fergus Hume goes on to write 130? <laughs> 130 more books. So he's really, he's knocking this like, is like whipping them out three there. out a month or something or maybe two. I don't How know. How do you even write that many books? Uh, it's, How do you have that many thoughts in your head? Well, you know. It's, well, that's why I'm not an author. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Good job, Fergus Hume. Um, Was this his first book? I think maybe, or hmm. his first, or the first success at the very least. Um. So, wow, like he, he really knocked it out of the park with his, this book, right? So Yeah, and speaking of which, Emile Gaborio, another Gaborio, Gaborio, another tangential author to the author you yeah. can read. Yes, he, he will have to be added to our list. Um, father of the police novel, we don't know too much about him. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, well, why aren't we reading one of his? Mm -hmm. Is he important? Do you know his novels? Yeah. Have you read any? She's talking to you, listener. Listener? Yeah, you. Yeah, not you. Carolyn. Yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, you. Um, yeah, he, he makes he makes references to all kinds of things, like um, Gaborio, maybe that's how it's pronounced, don't know. Balzac, Emil Zola. Um, he talks about Dickens' Pickwick Papers, a book called The Leavenworth Case, which I have read, actually. Anna Catherine Green. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of literary references in this book. Zola, I don't know. Who is Zola? Well, um, that's a great question. It's not coming to mind anything that Zola has written, which is my bad. Um, They're kind of making a knock at Zola in the book. Which, which, since I don't know who it is, I don't get... Same with, like, Ned Kelly. Like, I'm missing a reference <laughs> Ned here. Kelly, yes. We we need to do our research on Ned Kelly, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. A writer? 
Um, we've got some research to do. Hey, Dad, do you have you read Emil Zola? Can you make a recommendation? Yeah, we we need to know where to start. Post post somewhere. Send us an email, and we'll give you a sticker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from what I'm reading here, the Human Comedy is something he wrote, but I don't know what that is. Um, we'll add it to the list. We're going to have so many things on this list of tangents tangents that associated things basically just block off time from i don't know like a year or more yeah (laughs) um i mean it's just a suggestion but it's a good one you're looking for a hobby we are ready for you it's the hobby is tetonic and toxin yes yes and all things associated with tetonic and toxin um so, Sarah, what is coming up next? What are we reading next? Oh, we're doing a study in Scarlet, mm. which is Sherlock Holmes. Tell me how. Tell me why we selected this one. Carolyn was kind of our... Um, curator. Curator. That's yeah. the right word for this novel. So, if you want to disagree, disagree with the list. Um, yeah. If you want to add to it, add to it. But I want to hear from Carolyn. Why did you choose this one? I chose it um, because, okay, we're introduced for the first time to the consulting detective Sherlock Holmes and Watson, who are two of the most famous characters in English literature. It's just really important that we get them right out of the gate. Who are they? How how does um, Arthur Conan Doyle introduce him? And then... Um, how does that inform the way mysteries are even written today? So we're going to see how they first appear in A Study in Scarlet. And then the book after that we're going to read is The Hound of the Baskervilles. So we're going to see sort of how he evolves. Sometimes when a character is first introduced, they change over time a little bit. So we're going to kind of track that a little oh, bit. Yeah, cool. And um shouldn't take too long to read this book. No, it's it's interesting. You know, a lot of these, like, we don't know who the authors are anymore, but me and Sherlock Holmes is still, like, mm-hmm. being made into stuff. It's been so many things. Yeah, so many iterations. Film iterations and adaptations. Yeah, and shows. I saw the, uh, I haven't seen the whole thing, but the Benedict Cumberbatch mm-hmm. Sherlock series. Very entertaining. I did like that. Mm-hmm. Isn't there, like, a Lady Sherlock something they're making now? Maybe they are. They're, they're doing it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just can't remember. A sister, maybe. Uh, by the Maybe with the actress who is in Stranger Things. Yeah, yes, okay, yes. Yes, that's what I'm thinking Whose name of. is escaping me. Um, famous. She's in, uh, in Stranger Things, and I think she may be the sister. Sherlock, Sherlock oh, Holmes' okay. sister. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's so popular that... You know, there's Spin-ups. all these different... Sp- yeah, so many. So many. Um, and a lot of them really interesting and good. Yeah. Like the Benedict Cumberbatch. That's very hard to say, by the way. If you've just I read know. his name or you see it in the credits, just say it three times. It's it's really pretty complicated. <laughs> uh, but it's Sherlock Holmes. We're going to start at the beginning it's going to be awesome. Three hours, four if you're like really like loving it and lingering. I mean, it's a quick read and it's going to be really cool to, you know, start at the beginning. Yeah, check it out. If you have some cool Sherlock resources, post them to us. Mm-hmm. Comment them, get a sticker. Yeah. Um, and really just keep up with what 
We're reading by visiting our website, which is ttonicandtoxin.com, and our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are at ttonicandtoxin. Awesome. Thank you, listener. We appreciate you. All of the listeners, not just singular. No, all of you. you. You, listener. Oh, I'm sorry. We're only <laughs> talking to you, listener. I, I didn't realize. Um, I stand. I stand corrected, listener. Thank you. <laughs>